Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 157. I wake up in the morning and wonder who I am. This week we're dis- discussing season 3, episode 4 of Angel, Carpe Noctum, and season 1, episode 12 of Battlestar Galactica, Cobalt's Last Gleaming, part 1. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay. Carpe Noctum. Mm -hmm. So, Angel first this week. Um, So, yeah, uh, we should probably just dive right in here because we were kind of, uh, I don't know, busting at the seams before we started recording to talk about how little we might have to talk. <laughs> um, sure. It, it seems like we kind of have the same general opinion, which is this, this isn't necessarily the strongest episode um, that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which might be interesting in its own right. And, you know, we can maybe, I think it's kind of, uh, it has a few different things that it's maybe having some trouble with, like the kind of monster of the week um, yeah. uh, plot isn't as like sometimes just a standalone monster of the week story can give you enough to sort of chew on in its own right, um, which I'm not sure that this necessarily does. Um, and then also I kind of feel like it it wants to... It feels to me like it wants to be a metaphor of the week as well as a monster of the week, but I'm not sure that it tells us anything we don't really know already or Mm. that it pushes the envelope in any new ways. Um, Like, I think like, you know, the, the, obviously the link between Angel and Marcus is there, you know, um, Sure. But I'm not sure that it really challenges my understanding of what I know about Angel all that well. Um, right. And it it kind of ends up with Angel sort of giving his moral to Marcus, which is something which is kind of obvious. And like, probably we would have, it just doesn't do anything real interesting or unexpected with that contrast, I guess. Um Sure. Is sort of what I'm, what I'm getting at here. Um, so I kind of wanted to start with, I guess, one of the more interesting like character developments in the sense of taking the story somewhere new is uh, with the Fred and Angel relationship, which we've been sort of building on a little bit. Like mm-hmm. this season, she's been kind of coming more. Sorry, go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, so I, I was just going to, just before we get into the story, um, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really going to um, go into any production notes, but I guess I will just for a moment, because this actually, so one thing notable, um, and this may uh, highlight some of the reasons why the story is troublesome, uh, mm-hmm. we, we have a new writer. Um, oh, okay. So this is Scott Murphy. Um, he writes one other episode mm-hmm. this season. And and then he's gone. Like, we don't see him again. Um, sure. So that's not to say that, like, 
like before this, actually, he's um, credited on IMDb as being a story editor on a few other episodes um, mm -hmm. of Angel, and then uh, he had a few. He has a few other credits before that: The Nightmare Room, which I have never heard of, and The Huntress. Um, but more recently, he uh, was actually the writing, the supervising writer on uh, a number of about fourteen episodes of Star Wars: The Clone Wars. Um, and okay. so, uh, and he actually also, uh, it looks like, wrote the Clone Wars uh, movie that that kicked off the animated series. Okay. Um, which isn't the strongest story either. <laughs> that that opening movie to the series, the movie. But, okay. Um, you know the the Clone Wars overall that you know I quite liked. Um, you know, I know a lot of people. I've heard that about the series. Yeah, um, is uh, that it's it's good. So, so just to say that, you know, I mean, he, we, we, we'll see him once more here in Angel, but he, he doesn't stick around the Buffyverse long um, and whatever. And it, you know, it may just be that sort of thing that, you know, mm -hmm. maybe this was sort of a transitional job for him or whatever. But, um, sure. you know, it's not uh, not something. But I, I definitely this it feels to me like this would have been much better suited as like. Uh, a season one of Angel mm. uh, episode where we're still learning the characters, but but even at that, like I feel like it would be a mediocre season one episode. Sure. Like it, it, I don't even know that it would be that strong. But at least at that point, you could explore like some of the reasons why, like maybe Cordy doesn't recognize that it's not actually Angel right away and that sort of thing. And and we right, can get into right. some of the specifics. But um, I just figured I'd mention that this is. A new writer for the the series and and we only see him once more so um, yeah. maybe we can compare that episode when we get to it it's it's later this season but uh you know yeah anyway no and that is i mean so often in like sci-fi and fantasy we've had them in all the shows we've talked about so far where you have like the mistaken identity plot, you know, where like you're sure. either possessed or your body switched or your mind is altered or whatever. And it's like, that is just such a hard line to walk with how well, broad can you go before it, and how far can you go with the comedy of that before that just becomes like, not just like unbelievable, but like kind of just, ridiculous or annoying or you know or out of character or yeah. you know whatever so well and even uh, you know so there's like two aspects of it right there's there's the story aspect and then there's also like the actors themselves and i just mm -hmm. don't feel like the actor who plays marcus like the old man marcus um who actually i guess plays angel most of the time mm -hmm. has quite the same time like we've seen uh, David Boreanaz before like kind of taking on different personas like in his mm -hmm. uh, you know sort of goofy way and I think he does a better job David Boreanaz does a better job of playing Marcus in Angel's body than the actor who plays Marcus does playing Angel in Marcus's body if that makes I any agree. sense yeah yeah um, but also, like, just think about what we have to compare it to just within the Buffyverse is we have the excellent, you know, portrayals of Buffy and Faith, you know, vice versa between Sarah Michelle Gellar mm -hmm. and Eliza Dushku. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the comparison, and it's right. there's just no comparison no. here, right? Like no. this isn't Sarah Michelle Geller standing in front of the mirror going, because it's wrong. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. Like where you can see her being Faith saying that in Buffy's body. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. just a much better way of doing that. And this is just like, oh hey, wouldn't it be cool if like Angel switched bodies with someone? And instead of having it be someone who we might know like like say spike came to town or something like Mm -hmm. that would be sort of the equivalent i would say Mm -hmm. of you know sarah michelle geller and right that relationship yeah yeah. and and you know that could be really fun and whatever one because like the actors know each other but also like because the characters know each other you know what i mean so it like makes it a little more believable that like they would be able to pull off Mm -hmm. acting like the other person you know, to a certain degree. So I don't know. I Right. No. And that's a good point. Like when you don't have any reference for the other character who you're switching with, you don't have anything to hang the performance on. Like yeah. David Boreanaz can kind of do anything different. And it's like, okay, I guess that's how Marcus is. Cause we know nothing about Marcus. Right. So it, 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 but that's, it's not that fun because we don't really know Marcus. So it's not like, you know, seeing, his little quirks come out and cause he doesn't have any quirks. It's just right. random dude. And then, yeah, like the guy who plays Marcus doesn't seem to me to do anything differently as angel that he like, I mean, right. we don't see him as Marcus that long, but he's kind of just old guy. Like there's no, there's no f- sense of a physical change. Right. Right. Um, he's, well, a, he's playing old guy saying angels lines but there's no sense of like right angels frustration of you know i'm trapped in this like you know other than the lines he's given i don't have any sense of like the personality of angel within that situation Mm -hmm. um which like you said maybe if it had been an actor who was more familiar with the world and the character you might have gotten you know or just a better actor in that role. You know, maybe if you'd found the right person, they could have made that angel persona really come alive in somebody else. Um, yeah. But it, that didn't really get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so I, sorry, I sort of interrupted there with a lengthy aside, but. No. Um, kind you have of to fill the time somehow. To, to men. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. We only got fifty <laughs> more minutes left. What are we going to talk about? Um, well, that yeah. pretty much covers it. No. Um, so now that we crapped all over the writer, yeah, let's crap all over the episode and the actors too. <laughs> and, and the um, actors. Well, I do uh, think. I mean, I do think David Boreanaz does a decent job. But again, sure, like, sure. like you said, like I totally agree with you, and I didn't really quite think of it from that angle. But I, I definitely agree that. Like, we don't know Marcus, so... Other than, like, the 30 seconds we see him with, like, a couple hookers at the beginning. And, right, right. you know, the brief moment of him as an old man. Like, right. we don't really have a sense of who he is. But... Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyway. No, and and it... I think that is consistently a fun thing whenever you get to see... Angel or David Boreanaz do something out of character. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think just because Angel is 
always so much the same. He's such a consistent personality that it's almost like anything outside of the the range of what normally you see is kind of nice and refreshing and like, you know, um, like just it gives it a different sort of flavor. Yeah. Um, You know, and there was some stuff that like was good about that, like him his kind of realization of like his vampire nature and stuff. Like when he kind of, he's sort of confused cause that's a different flavor. This could easily uh, tip into like just a repeat of like Angelus, like, sure. you know, the, the, you know, reveling in his own like hedonistic evil kind of thing. But like the fact that he discovers it as he goes along makes it a little bit different. And like that he kind of, he says, like, oh, I bit Lila just because it seemed like the thing to do. Like, just, like, that kind of natural response to a situation. Not because he's a vampire and wants to bite her, but because it's, like, it just comes out of him instinctively. Mm. And being kind of having to really figure out. Like, that was, I think, uh, enjoyable to sort of watch um, Boreanaz figure out how to play that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, good moments, I think, embedded in there. Um, sure. But yeah. And um, the more I think of it, the more I really want to see a Spike and Angel swap <laughs> now. Sure. But just sure. only because, like, like, because we've seen, like, Spike sort of toss off, like, ooh, I'm Angel, I'm, you know, Mr. Goody right, goody. we've like, seen their like we've seen... their parodies of each other. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, like seeing that as like in each other's bodies would be hilarious with like right. the other actor playing them, obviously. Um, right, right. Try to play it genuine. That's not just making fun of the other one, but you now have to genuinely embody those yeah. those characteristics that you've been teasing for the past like five years or whatever. Um. It's not a spoiler because it doesn't happen, but I will say we never do get to unfortunately see that. So, <sighs> only anyway, in, missed, only in fanfic. Missed opportunity. Um, yeah, well, let's, let's not <laughs> get into what Angel and Spike do in fanfic. <laughs> get up to in fanfic. That's that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Marcus, or no, Marcus, Angel no, and Fred, right? First, I wanted to talk about Angel and Fred because I feel like it's the one maybe like ongoing character thing that actually does get like advanced a little bit in this episode. Um, and we've had the build up to that, like, you know, Fred uh, being shy, but coming out of her shell, like a little bit more mm-hmm. each episode. Um, and, uh, and this kind of ongoing crush infatuation something for angel like her yeah her the way she looks up to him first as like you know the the hunky guy who came and rescued her from pylea but now like more as a person like getting to know him and Mm -hmm. um you know but still kind of interesting how this is really about fred not really knowing Angel that well at all. Um, yeah. You know, her her kind of, her ideals 
of what he's like, not necessarily being at all close to what he really is like. So like, you know, uh, you get her kind of thinking like, oh, he's so deep. He's probably reading the brothers Karamazov, you know, and he comes in with, you know, his Charlton Heston double feature, you know, which is like, right. Which Fred doesn't seem to register. She's, she's just happy that he wants to go do something and that she's invited, but it doesn't ever really kind of occur to her that, Oh, the things I thought he, the kind of person I thought he was, isn't actually like, because he's, you know, broody and dark and keeps to himself. That means he falls into her definition of a deep person, which is like very literate and well-read and, you know, intellectual, um, which isn't really, angel necessarily um like he is i guess deep and broody just not in the ways that she thinks he might be right um but yeah so you kind of get them like it you know the 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 episode is them sort of miscommunicating with each other all over the place um so her kind of and reading things in that aren't there misunderstanding things that he does and his refusal to correct that and and to address it um yeah which i guess leads to what comes later because it's sort of that thing of if he'd taken cordy's advice and had the talk earlier we wouldn't have gotten into you know the misunderstanding that comes later down the road when she's you know blindsided by you know the sight of him with Lila and everything. Well, and and even the whole plot that happens is avoidance. Right. Of is based on avoidance, avoidance right. right? Like his because right. the, the whole the whole thing right. is Cordy's like, hey, Angel has something to say, and he comes in and is like, Oh, look, there's a newspaper. Oh look, someone died. We should look into that. Like right. Right. you know, they had no and had that not happened. Now, granted, it turns out to be a legitimate magical you know supernatural thing that they can ultimately take care of and you know yeah have people stop dying but that doesn't mean like like all this stuff that happens to angel and his almost getting killed and his body taken over to who knows what effect you know probably a bad one uh wouldn't have happened if he had just like instead of doing that if he had just like talked to fred mm-hmm. um so yeah anyway. sure uh but yeah you know so with uh and and uh, cordy calls fred uh fred's infatuation the big puppy love right like mm-hmm. this is like you said like it's adoration it's not you know necessarily knowing who angel is like even angelus like she has no concept of what angelus is you know and the others have to sort of explain to her later Mm -hmm. when cordy at first thinks you know that angelus has come back um you know that uh you know fred just has no idea that there's like this evil side to angel um or potentially evil side anyway right so so yeah i'm not sure so like it it 
kind of gets nipped in the bud, you know, not the way, <laughs> right not in, the in butt. yeah, right, like <laughs> not the... exactly the way that is the gentlest, like, but it kind of is like no. the the mere, um, you know, sight of you know Angel and Lila is sort of, and then I guess Cordy's ex- explanations subsequently, right. you know, but like you do get that sense that even just the devastation of that was kind of enough to sort of pull Fred out of, you know, if not entirely out of what she was feeling, at least it kind of shocks her out of it in the moment. Um, Sure. You know, and and even after they know, oh, it's switched, it's not really Angel, she still gives him that one little smack on the head. Like, there's kind of a sense of like, it's hard for it's going to be hard for her to even separate that out from Angel himself. Like, you know, just the idea of it was kind of enough to, you know, uh, change her feelings a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Well, and then even at the end where, you know, they have the talk and, you know, like you said, like Cordy kind of explains stuff to her and Angel is explaining stuff. And then Cordy comes in and I know I'm like skipping right to the end part with, you know, Buffy, but I mean, not with Buffy because she doesn't appear, but you know, the fact that like Angel hears Buffy's name and then rushes out and like Fred doesn't seem to have a clue who Buffy is. Like she just repeats her name, like Buffy, like, Like, who the heck is Buffy? <laughs> like, right. I don't even know if Buffy has been mentioned since Fred came back. Right. Except except that... Well, she's there at the end of right. the season. Right. I was just thinking, like, at the end of the season when... But Willow... we don't really see how that conversation goes, you know? No. But I guess... I mean, I mean just... It's at least enough to know that Fred yeah. has heard the name and... Right maybe is at least aware that it's an important name right, right. to Angel, but doesn't have a sense of what Buffy means, you know, to him like the others do. Right, right. Yeah, and I think also it's it's an important thing that, um, you know, she's talking about it's, you know, maybe it's better for him that he can't experience these things and he's better off and everything. Um, you know, and, and you get like there's this idea of like well it's not <laughs> saying to fred it's not me it's you right like it, like it's or the other <laughs> way around i guess um uh it's it's like it's not about anything being wrong with fred it's that cordy's explanation is it's not your fault angel can't have this with anybody and she's kind of you know accepting that except that we see that at the end of the episode you know those are good things to avoid and then, you know, uh, they come in, Buffy's alive and Angel runs off. So there's this sense of, well, that sounds great, but he can't avoid it. And there are certain people that he can't avoid it with, you know, like he's going to feel that way about Buffy, whether he wants to or not. Right. Um, and so it's not all a matter of, uh, it, it, it's a little, it's a little kick at Fred, like without meaning to be. There's that sense of like, well, Angel can't feel that about anybody except for Buffy because she is special and he can't help it, you know. Yeah. Um, 
so, you know, um, which I think kind of connects back to her thing of wanting to feel special, you know, her, her little speech about, you know, when the waitress calls you honey, it doesn't really mean you're special. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, my sense is that Fred, it's something she might've thought about before is, you know, she kind of seems like the person who maybe feels that she's not special and is sort of found ways to explain that to herself. Like, you know, don't get excited when the the waitress or the guy or whoever singles you out because, you know, it's not really about you. Um, right. And she's kind of maybe used to explaining those things away. Um, yeah. So. So, yeah. Um. I don't have anything else for Angel and Fred. I don't know if you do. No. Um, nice, nice Fitzgerald reference in there. But other than that, sure. Uh, no, no, nothing really. Um, so yeah. So we can, we can move on. I don't know how much you want to talk about the main plot or not, but no. I mean, um, I feel like we kind of did. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we did kind of cover it already. It's like, and this is what I mean by I feel like it wants to be a metaphor of the week. Like, I feel like I should be able to find something to say about the idea of, like, the comparison between Marcus and Angel of, like, these are, you know, old men who are kind of leading or seeking these immortal lives where they are continuously young and, you know, using up, you know, the youth and like of other people and all this stuff. And, and, but like, I don't, other than noting that, I don't know that I really have anywhere to go with it. Um, sure. And yeah, like it's, it's, it doesn't really tell me much about Angel because like everybody thinks this is Angelus when he acts like this. It's not mm-hmm. like Angel is like out there, you know, wrecking lives and womanizing and like, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't really have a whole lot to say about like his choices and everything. So. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know that I have much to say about it either other than sort of where I was going before with like, like, I feel like with Cordy, uh, like she should have, she should have known, mm-hmm. you know, right away that it wasn't like that something yeah. was wrong and she doesn't. And so I don't know if that's just because it's bad writing or, or, right. uh, you know, the writer not fully understanding the character um and everything they've gone through and I'll, and like Cordy is typically the one you think of to like cut through the bs and mm-hmm. just say it as she sees it so like but like you can see like some looks from her a few times like what's going on but she doesn't say anything and i just feel like that's 
somewhat out of character for her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Wesley, at least, like, you can kind of understand, like, he's not around. And then when he is around, like, he's like, oh, but why is, like, Cordy jumps right to the conclusion of, like, oh, he's Angelus again. Right. Which is fair enough, you know, because, like, she heard that Angel was fooling around with some woman and now he's being mean to people. Like, so that's not necessarily a poor conclusion on her part but you know wesley's the one who finds like oh but why would angel need to be reading about vampires because he is one so he -hmm. shouldn't need to do that and you know that's fine or whatever but i don't know even like with the whole awkward conversation between the two of them when marcus as angel Mm -hmm. thinks wesley is fred um like Again, like even that conversation, like I feel like there's a way where that dialogue could have worked to make it ambiguous. Like, because I I think what we're supposed to get from that scene is that Angel is sort of asking for forgiveness for all the crap he pulled like last season. Mm. But we've already Mm -hmm. gone through that. Like, I feel like we've already gotten to a point where we're sort of past that. And and we're at like a new normal at this point. So I like, I don't even feel like, I feel like there probably is a way where that dialogue could have worked, but it does like that would have to be different than the way it was actually done. Right. Right. (laughs) Like the way it was done, it just doesn't. And I could be totally off base. Like maybe that's not what we're supposed to get. That's, that's the only thing I can think of as far as the way that, that. Right. How's Wesley supposed to be understanding this conversation? Right. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't get how that, uh, yeah, I don't get Wesley's understanding of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I mean, to some degree, like, that might be the point, is that it's so bizarre that he doesn't get the conversation, but then, like, I'm not clear what, what we're supposed to take from it either as, like, yeah. the watchers. Yeah, it's like, it's not, it's, it's not, like deep and dramatic enough to be like serious but it's not like funny enough to just be comedy either you know like apart from like oh haha the one illusion like the the tea joke is you know oh wesley's you know uh you know uh, gay or effeminate or whatever um confirming you know what angel thinks you know about like Fred and himself, like it never, it doesn't go full on into like that kind of farcical comedy, you know, it doesn't become like a scene about how like effeminate Wesley is like, it's like, it kind of seems like that's where it's going to go is like, we're going to have a big comedy scene. And then it's like, Angel kind of says like, kind of reasonable things about workplace boundaries and Wesley kind of goes, okay. It's like, okay, I don't understand what the point of that was other than just, we have to have a scene before he figures out that it's Fred. Um, You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. And I agree. Like in general, it's, it's too obvious that it's not angel for them to get away with being as 
oblivious as they are for the episode. Yeah. Um, you know, being uh, goofy and, you know, uh, saying ridiculous things and hitting on all the girls and all that stuff. It's just like, it's so obviously not him, but then like that doesn't necessarily do anything that's like very interesting. Yeah. So like even bringing in Lila and Gavin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of a couple of things there. Um, I mean, I guess I can sort of see, kind of see uh, Lila's desire to put one over on her coworker because that's just how she is. Mm-hmm. But given that the last time we saw Lila and like Angel's very irate, uh, you know, mm-hmm. threat to her basically, um, I don't know that I quite buy her just showing up like alone at mm. the hotel and, you know, doing Angel this favor just to put the screws on to Gavin. Right. Um, right. Like, I more would see it as like she has like bodyguards with her and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, if she was mm. going to do something like that and that she would keep her distance away, not that like, she would allow herself to be seduced by right. angel like i don't know that just seems to me also to be a little far-fetched mm-hmm. um but you know i guess i i don't know what are your what are your thoughts there yeah no i think i think i agree it like kind of does come sort of you know, out of nowhere. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think it's the most excusable just because she doesn't know Angel as well as the others. Um, so thinking about it just in the context of the scene, I think it works okay. But like, yeah, thinking about their history together and realizing, oh, yeah, like the last time he saw you, he was pretty angry. Uh, yeah, like her allowing him to get close enough to even like bite her is uh, a little bit unbelievable. Um, yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Um, um, I think it's 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 a it's a problem of like standalone ideas that aren't taking the larger kind of context into account, you know, of yeah, the, the history of the relationships of the characters and everything. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So I don't, I mean, I don't know that we need to belabor it. Uh, it, it ends I mean, mercifully. It, it does. <laughs> and you know, the one thing that is interesting just about to finish with Lila really quick is I'm not sure that I dislike the idea of like, because we've had that with Wolfram and Hart of the, the moral ambiguity of their motivations, which sure. like sometimes I felt like a little confused by. Like there were a lot of times with Lindsay where I just felt like I just don't get him. <laughs> like not that I don't understand him like personally, but like I don't always even understand what he's doing. <laughs> like I don't understand what his motivations are. Um, 
so there's times where that's gotten, I think for me a little bit confusing. Um, but, but I feel like with Lila, this continues into that thing of Wolfram and Hart aren't necessarily a hundred percent out to destroy all the good guys all the time. Like there is that kind of like, you're in the moment doing whatever you is best for you in the situation. And that might change on a given day. So the idea of like Lila not being necessarily against it's getting kind of frisky with Angel. Like I, there's something in there that it's like, okay, I can kind of see that. I don't know that now is the right time for that. Like maybe we could have planted those seeds a little earlier. Like of maybe there's some yeah. attraction as well as competition there. Right. And definitely coming on the heels of their last episode they had together. Right. This is definitely not a good time to introduce that idea. <laughs> like, you know, but I'm not necessarily against the notion of Lila being kind of my impression of like the Wolfram and Hart team is that it's always, there's always that sense of out for number one and like whatever feels right in the moment. They're not necessarily loyal to like, you know, they're not, they're not motivated by the mission of Wolfram and Hart in the same way that like Angel and the team are devoted to a mission. Like, I feel like, Sure. Lila Lila works for num for Wolfram and Hart, but she's devoted to herself. Yeah. So I I I I can buy a situation in which if she's attracted to Angel, she will act on that. But I don't know that this is the right time for that. I guess right. is that's kind of my feeling. Um, so there's like potentially there's a kernel of something there that. I don't mind, but, uh, yeah, kind of silly of her to, um, let him get that close and then be surprised when he, <laughs> even though it's not Angel, like, it's like, you know, she kind of should have seen that coming a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I guess, I mean, there's this ongoing rivalry between her and Gavin, which I guess is just about a competitive thing of who, like, it just, it's not enough to take Angel down. Like, they have to, each of them wants to be the one that's responsible for it. So, to the extent that she'll even go about helping Angel to spite Gavin. Um, so, you know, that's a continuing thing, not obviously i'm not sure where that's going yet but um right but yeah so she gave him all these like forged documents and everything so that's gavin's plan defeated <laughs> with his like building code violations and you know social security numbers and all that kind of thing yeah yeah um I, I mean, hard to say with Lila. Like, I, I feel the same way as you do. Like, it's hard to understand motive sometimes. Like, she seems not only to want to get Angel. Like, at least, I mean, who knows if Gavin is sincere in his 
desire to work together with her. Mm-hmm. But, like, she seems to not be having any of it. Like, she, it's not enough for her to just, like, get Angel, but it has to be done in a way where it's her plan or her project or whatever you want to call it that right. that does it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Any any other thoughts about sort of the Marcus stuff or, like, the any of the characters? Not really. Um, yeah, I kind of feel like I might be maxed out. Um, cool. No. Nope. Well, I've got. Um, yeah, did we want to talk really quick about the ending? Ending where we yeah. get a little illusion, not a not quite a crossover, but at least acknowledgement of the Buffy plot and that uh, Buffy is alive. So right. So, right, we get, I guess, Willow calls or someone calls, right? I think Willow, yeah. um, Yeah. Willow seems to be, like, the conduit to, like, the LA team, right? Right, Like, she's the communications link there. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we get Cordy coming in and telling Angel, uh, Mm -hmm. Buffy's alive. And Buffy, or, or, uh, sorry, Angel (laughs) running out. um, So there is, uh, and, and I guess, I mean... I guess we could have t- waited to talk about this next week or even the week after, but um, there is a bit of a further story that happens here, mm-hmm. but it doesn't happen on screen either in Angel or Buffy. Um, but basically there's a, a comic that Jane Espenson wrote uh, that sort of fills the gap uh, between uh, this episode and the next episode of Angel Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in turn, the next episode of Buffy and the one after that, um, episodes four and five of each respective season, but, uh, it's kind of difficult to explain it that way, I guess. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> anyway, it, it, it's, a the comic is called Reunion. Um, and it's, it's sort of the, you know, because we have Buffy and Angel now airing on different networks and stuff, you can't really do the same kind of crossover that, you know, we have mm-hmm. grown accustomed to mm-hmm. in previous seasons. So um, it's a it's just a one single comic, you know, one shot, they call it, um, you know, uh, published by Dark Horse and basically just... Uh, it doesn't actually tell the story of Buffy and Angel's reunion, but in sort of a humorous Jane Espenson way, it tells what the Scoobies all individual or each individually think may have happened, you know, during the reunion. But like, you know, Angel and Buffy themselves don't actually ever sort of relate what went on. That's like on. the most Jane Espenson um, thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Secondary um, characters speculating about what might have happened during the reunion of the main characters. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Yeah. Um, but it is it is considered canonical. Um, Whedon, you know, uh, at least reviewed it or, or okayed the story. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and Fox, uh, you know, who owns the Buffy property, uh, or at least at that point, um, had some say in it, uh, had... Uh, Gave it there okay as well. And it was marketed as, you know, sort of an interstitial story um, that happens between these episodes. So, yeah. Um, 
you know, again, not not a huge thing, but at least sort of worth mentioning. Um, and I don't even know, like, I've, I've actually not read the comic. Um, I don't know if it's collected somewhere or mm. um, what, but. If I can uh, figure out where, I'll link to it. Just, you know, or to the collection or whatever, wherever it's published, just yeah. in case people want to track it down. But Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and I mean, you might be able to find it on Amazon or something. But anyway. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, with that said, we can probably move on to uh, BSG. All right. Let's do it. All right. So, um, yeah. Let's see. Cobalt's Last Gleaming, part yeah. one. Uh, a lot of a lot of where the uh, angel story was sort of straightforward. Uh, this is a bit more complex, and and mm-hmm. the characters are kind of in and out, uh, you know, talking and interacting with each other. So, um, you had mentioned that we sort of have this like prologue aspect working right so we've Mm -hmm. got um the opening where you have adama and lee you know sparring together and then you have starbuck and baltar uh sparring Mm -hmm. uh on their own (laughs) in a different way uh uh and then you have hilo and sharon um also with an altercation of sorts um and then boomer uh on her own um mm-hmm. and and as you mentioned these are except i mean i guess adama and lee aren't quite uh a storyline through um lee kind of hops from one thing to the next mm-hmm. um so does starbuck and baltar apparently uh but you have um you have sort of the setups for like the main threads of the story um throughout the rest of the episode here well and i think also they're culminate or not culminations because it's not the end of the episode yet, but at least in these final, in the finale episodes, you're getting um, the, the season long plots kind of coming to some sort of a climax. So like Adama, the Adamas aren't necessarily a main part of this episode, but like their sparring match seems appropriate for what we've seen this season, you know, of like sure. a little bit of, you know, doing something that should be, oh, we're father son bonding, you know, and, and but it gets kind of competitive and <laughs> like a little, a little more bit. tense than it, you know, maybe was meant to be at the beginning, which seems kind of and and like I do like the way that works, um the way they kind of have the pairs of scenes, you know, so you've got the sparring of the two couples and actually like, I want to point that out because it's, there's a later, at least one episode, if not more where boxing and boxing is sort of the dancing of BSG. I think like there's some, it's not the last time where like boxing and, you know, romantic relationships are like kind of coupled. Um, so that's not to say there's anything weird going on with the Adamas. I'm just saying, you know, and I, well, you get the the Lee connection too. like Lee kind of appears in the Starbuck and Baltar scene, at least 
in spirit, you know, like he's there in Starbucks thoughts and like, it's even shot in such a way that we're supposed to think it's Lee at first. Like it, like the guy she's with has shorter hair than Baltar. So there's mm -hmm. even like some trickery with the camera to make you think that it's Lee when it's not. Um, sure. So, and, but then obviously you have, and, and well, just to finish with that kind of at the moment that she realizes that, Oh, she made a mistake and it's not Lee. It's Baltar. You get Adama punching out Lee. So like, he's sort of, you know, uh, you get those two revelations kind of at the same moment. Um, and then, you know, with the Sharons, you have the gun connection, you know, and it, it being like specifically like almost suicidal scenes, you know, so you have Boomer kind of contemplating her own suicide and you have Sharon saying, you know, just do it. Like telling him to like, it's okay. You, if you want to kill me, you can. And letting him do that so you kind of there's like a connection there of the sharons are almost kind of having the same thought at the same time yeah 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 no the the pointing of the you know Hilo pointing the gun at sharon and, and then boomer you know pointing her own gun at herself like the the back-to-back -back visuals there and also the um contrast between the lighting in the mm -hmm. two scenes, like mm -hmm. just, I mean, obviously that that's contrast, but you, you're seeing like, these are two of the same person, like thinking the same exact thing at the same mm -hmm. time. And, you know, again, we don't know like if the Cylons can actually like hear each other's thoughts mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. Um, right like from that distance or whatever, but you know, there does seem to be something connecting the two of them in those right. moments. Right. Um, so yeah. So let's finish up with Hilo and Sharon anyway, just to kind of, cause they're like the cleanest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, thing. So you get, you know, you get the opening with Hilo running and, like running basically into Sharon and then he shoots her mm -hmm. uh but can't quite like bring himself to right. finish her off. Right. Um and then the next time we see them they're like sitting in the rain, right? And um well they're kind of like sitting like under little bits of shelter each of them and like with this gulf of rain sort of between them, right? Like uh, speaking of metaphors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, you know, Sharon trying to talk to him, like, you know, oh, you know, I do get cold and, um, like she tries to, you know, say his name and he's like, don't call me that. And mm -hmm. you're not even human. And, um, not like, he still seems to think that like, Sharon was cloned or something like mm. that because he says you're not even Sharon you're not even human so like the way that he seems to be thinking of it is that like somehow Sharon's DNA was like taken right. and created you know into this new Sharon um, right that's a good point I never really thought of that but like yeah like to him 
Sharon was real and you're not, you're like the copy of her. You know, it hasn't yet occurred to him that there yeah. is no real Sharon apart from the Cylons. Right. You know, that they are all Sharon. Right. Um, which is what she's saying, you know, like, I'm Sharon, like, uh, whatever Sharon is, I'm as much or that of as she is, you know, that right. she may be human or silent or whatever, but we're the same. Whereas yeah. he's definitely still putting the Sharon he knew on, like, that hasn't yet occurred to him that she might be, like, the same right. as this other copy that's running around. Right. Um. Um. Yeah, and kind of gives the excuse of keeping her around to get as like you know a way off the planet like you're right. gonna come with me and help me get off of here but like as you said is that just an excuse you definitely have the sense that he couldn't bring himself to shoot her dead so yeah you know we i mean that's so how i see all, it yeah. right yeah yeah that's how i see it is that he wants to that you know, pointing the head at her, like you, you see, like sort of his initial thought is to shoot her, but yeah, that something stops him, and I don't think it's like the rational position of I need. Her well, I need her. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Um, no, it's like it's the up close when it's you know she looks the same as his friend, and she's bleeding right. from the shoulder. Like there's no discernible difference. Can you even if you know it's a copy can you really bring yourself to like shoot your friend you know in the head that is a lot harder than it sounds yeah so um so yeah so i don't i don't necessarily have anything more for them but yeah uh yeah so they're definitely uh their relationship has reached a pinnacle i guess if you want to call it that. Um, sure. uh, so, all right. Adama and Lee, well, so we don't really see them together after it, but um, I did want to mention the one thing. So Adama knocks Lee down and then Lee's like, oh, dad, ow, I thought we were just sparring. <laughs> um, all right, he doesn't say it quite like that, but uh, he sort That's of. That's the tone you want to use for Lee. Is sort of generally a little whiny. Yeah, he sort of whines about it, and then um, you know he says, "I thought we were just sparring," and not, and Adama says, "That's why you didn't win." Right. And you know the thing being for Adama, like this is, you know, again, this is typical. Like you know, how does he teach his son by kicking his ass and then belittling him? Right. Like <laughs> you know, you can imagine. Like this, this is just how Lee's upbringing yeah. has always been, right? Yeah. So he should just be used to it by now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like this is, like we've seen some tender moments, and like I don't necessarily think this is Adama being harsh per se, um, or at least like I don't think his intention is necessarily to be like a dick or anything. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah, like I think he's just you know, this is the way he teaches his son. And, and sometimes the way you do that is just to be realistic and right, right. You know, knock him on his butt and tell him like, you're, you have the wrong mind frame if this is what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, you know, again, like there's still a part two and mm-hmm. like we've struggled before with sort of talking about part, part one, parts right. one um, right. of, epi- you know, two part episodes, but um, you know, so we don't necessarily know how it all will pan out or mm-hmm. I'm, you kind of do. We but, do, but like, yeah. But you know what I mean? Like at this point, like that's not part of the conversation. So, you know, I don't know that we have a ton, but like you see like, Lee trying to be like Mr. Tough Guy again, mm-hmm. but you know, he's still sort of whiny. So like even with like his demand later of Starbuck, like, you know, I'm your officer and you need to listen to me kind of stuff. Like Yeah. You get the sense that this is like him trying to sort of be Adama and like mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's a completely different situation, so it's not sparring, you know, even in, in sort of uh, you know theory or anything but you know you get that same of like that thing where he's you see him like maybe trying to channel Adama but he's just sort of coming off as petulant <laughs> a bit sure. and, and yeah. you know of course with Starbuck you get the added thing of he figures out like oh something happened between Starbuck and Baltar and Right. That thing is what I wanted to have happen between me and Starbuck. Right. Right. Um, right. So, Especially yeah. after you realize in retrospect the setup of uh, the last episode where they get dressed up and go to the the dance. You're kind of your expectations are being sort of set up for something to finally happen between Starbuck and Apollo. And then, you know, uh, that's not where it goes. Um which is interesting in like the the note about uh you know you don't uh lose control and that's why uh sorry it's okay um where Adama's note is you don't lose control and that's why uh you don't win um interesting I, you know what I had just a thought that never occurred to me before whereas I feel like that's an interesting thing to talk about in context of Baltar and Starbuck because is that kind of what Baltar has that Lee doesn't (laughs) it's like you know a lack of control yeah like that's the connection like you know you feel like you're being set up to oh Lee and Kara are finally gonna you know acknowledge you know the this kind of feelings that they have or this flirtation that they've had all season or whatever but like no, like they get dressed up, they have their dances, and then they go home. Whereas Starbuck connects with Baltar, who's really kind of they're similar in their kind of like, you know, uh, I don't know, drinking and promiscuity, and like their kind of wild lifestyle is more in line. So they, I mean, they both kind of regret it, but in a way, they connect in a way that she hasn't with Lee yet, even if they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I think definitely that sense Mm -hmm. of having been kicked around by everybody is what's behind Lee being kind of like irritating. It's like, you know, when sure it's always that thing of like, if you've been pushed around, then you go and want to push somebody else around, you know? Um, Like a lot of bullies have been bullied, you know? And yeah, yeah. Is is Adama a bully? Maybe that's a little strong, but like, yeah, like he gets, 
kind of, you know, uh, pushed around by his dad and then has to go sort of tell Starbuck, you know, off and confront and, and be kind of in a particularly like mean spirited sort of way. Um, sure. You know, cause it's not like, like, I think she's right when she kind of says like, I don't owe you anything. Like they're not together. Um, and he hasn't made any sort of declaration of, you know, right. Uh, of any kind. So why does he feel so offended when he finds this out? Um, yeah. You know, and Baltar has the line about, you know, I always win. So it is a competition, you know, um, Right. You know, right. Which is where I think the boxing metaphor comes in that around all these relationships, there's this kind of competitive spirit of you have to win and you have to sort of take control and everything. But, um, yeah. And well, but of course, even though Baltar may always win or claim he always wins, um, we see him losing to head six. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, frequently. Yes. Uh, even in this episode. Yeah. Um, Regularly. <laughs> like even like, so even in that card game, right. Where you have like head right. six saying like, you're, you're disappointing. Yeah. Disappointing. <laughs> and you know, this isn't a good look for you. Right. Uh, kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, in the conversations with Rosalind, where you have head six, like, basically pushing and prodding him, you know, mm. uh, like some kind of toy, as mm -hmm. he says. Um, and like you said, like, he is, he definitely exhibits a certain lack of control, uh, especially in that scene, right? Because, like, you know, again, we have another scene where, like, he's talking to two people at once, and... But not even as, like, he's rarely smooth about it, but he's usually able to, like, recover at least to some degree. But this one is just, like, like he blurts out, I'm not your plaything. And it's like, what does right. that even have anything to do with what he and Rosalind right. are talking about? Of my, course, nothing. But My um, favorite part is the, I don't have to take this from either of you. And then there's that look between Rosalind and Billy. Like, Billy sitting in the corner hasn't even said anything, like... And they just assume he's talking about Billy because he's the only other one in the room. And right. then his kind of recovery of you in there or in there, either of you, wherever you are, I don't have right. to take like is right. yeah, totally fumbling. And it kind of cracks me up that this is like day one of his vice presidency. <laughs> right. And he's already having like a nervous breakdown. Right. Um and he's like, and, and like blaming Rosalind, like, you know, right. how could you think that I could take on something new? And she's right. like, well, you're a genius, right? <laughs> right, like, right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The pressure has gotten to him already. Yeah. Uh, 20 minutes into, right. which of course you realize like it has nothing to do with his mind couldn't be further from his duties as vice president. Like the the go the goal was to win and get that yeah and now that he's done that that's like off his mind like there's no the most important things going on right now are what happened with Starbuck and 
his tension with number six and the impending whatever this new Cylon attack is and staying alive. Like those are the priorities. Like the vice presidency is like below those numbers, if not further down the line of important things on his plate right now. Um, So, yeah. Um, So, yeah. So with Baltar, you also get, um, you end up having him volunteer, but then kind of force uh, Adama and and Rosalind's hand to let him go on the mission to Cobol, mm-hmm. um, which of course isn't really Baltar; it's Head Six who's sort of telling him to do this. Of course, uh, right. Once again, sort of orchestrating things, at least his actions, sort of behind right. the scenes. Um, with the implication that something's going to go down on Galactica that he won't want to be around for. Right. Um, and he, he seems to think it, there's some kind of Cylon attack imminent. Um, which there is, but it just turns out to be that he flies into it. Right. Uh, right. Rather right. He than, actually ends up in the middle of yeah, the disaster. Rather which, than... which, of course, right. Like, that's that's the thing, right? It's like, it's to make you wonder what was so bad that head six would convince him to leave Galactica and go right into the middle of a right. Cylon, you know, like, why is that better? Right. <laughs> like why right. is being shot down by Cylon ships better than whatever's happening? On right. Right. Galactica. Which um, I think also brings up again, the idea of the question of head six's sort of motivations and everything, because sure. you get, you you get even she's even more cryptic than usual in this episode of like not explaining what is going to happen or why he needs to do a certain thing she sort of dangles oh you know at the end, something bad is coming and you don't want to be here for it so he kind of makes decisions based on that but you also get very strongly in this episode her uh her own um uh, hurt feelings of being spurned, you know, like just like he's offended by Kara, you know, kind of per- wishing it were Lee instead of him. Then you also have head six over in the corner, sort of coldly staring at him, like when he gets out of bed and like pours his drink, and she's just sort of giving him, you know, the stink eye the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, the whole episode, she's just furious, which is interesting because, you know, there's this question of, is that part of his subconscious or not? So if she's part of him, then what is that? Is that his own guilt, his own questioning of his own decisions? Or is she really something separate from him that really is disappointed in what he's done? Sure. Um, and we've had like lines in earlier episodes about her didn't she kind of say like oh yeah you can go out with the journalist and I won't care because I know you're really mine and it's like that's clearly not true because he you know gets together with Starbuck and she's instantly jealous you know um which I think at least introduces some doubt into her motives of what she tells him. 
Like, like, is she telling him all this stuff about a silent attack out of some sort of like spite or manipulation or whatever? Um, you know, yeah. I kind of get the same vibe as in, um, what was it like six degrees of separation where what she does and doesn't tell him is sort of motivated by like, it's sort of a punishment for his, what he's done. Like, or at least the way she goes about telling him things like it's there to kind of give him hell because she's sort of angry with him at the, t at the moment. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, What, what's that they say about a woman scorned? Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it does rest on, like you were saying, like on whether you see Head Six as being a part of Baltar's uh, psyche or, or not. And mm -hmm. if not, then what does that mean? Like, if there is right. some sort of connection to Cylon intelligence somehow then you know I don't know what are the implications there again then it's oh it's leading me into this situation where I'm crash landing on a planet you know right right in the middle of a Cylon attack kind of thing um right, right. so yeah yeah I don't know um yeah as far as like and you're right like she did talk about the journals but uh the difference here being is that because like even there she she had six was like oh you know but i still have your heart and then mm. like was like and i can squeeze it you know till it right, pops right, kind of right. right there's still um, like some threat behind those words and uh well like the idea being that love isn't about sex right but mm. here you have her asking like why is baltar in love with starbuck mm. Uh, which implies that there is something more than just sex, even right. though that's where we see them in the beginning, right? Um, right. So, yeah. How can, how can you love her, Caius? Uh, and he says, I don't. And then she's like, you can't lie to me. I know everything. Um, which it seems that she does. So, hmm. yeah, hard to... I, I'm not sure I understand what exactly the it is that she sees why she can tell that Gaius loves Starbuck where he didn't love the journalist per se, but mm -hmm. um she certainly seems to be perceive that. And again, is that Gaius's psyche? Like, you know, right. is it just because she's manifesting like the truth about how he really feels towards Starbuck, or is it that there's something external? Like you said before, so I right. I don't know. We don't get an answer, but right. I also enjoy the moment when she slams his head into the mirror. Into the mirror, um, sure. it's very funny. Sure, sure. Um, because I think we've seen her be like physically threatening before, but that kind of is that the first time. I don't know. I'd have to go back well, and see. But is that the first time she compels him to do something physically? Where it's not just, she's stood over him, she's, you know, 
interacted with him physically. She's intimidated him before. You, but you, this time she you, gets him you mean, to... You mean besides the time where, you know, Starbuck walks in on him? <laughs> uh, well, but still that is like, even that is like under his own volition. Like he's kind of... Yeah, I guess. You can imagine like he's... He's making that happen, whereas here, it's just a I really. I can't really imagine any fantasy. scenario where he would want to slam his head into the mirror. Like something he doesn't want to happen physically sure. happens. You know, it's not just I'm having a fantasy and I'm enacting it. It's she takes his head and slams it hard into the mirror, and now he has like a cut that he has to explain to a bunch of other people. Like she makes physical suffering happen in a way that I don't see him motivated to do in any sort of like enacting his own fantasies type of way. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's not the first time they physically interacted with each other, but that seems to be crossing some sort of line there. <laughs> like yeah. she beats him up and he has like the scar to prove it. Um, right. right. You know, and so, yeah, I feel like that's a progression into new territory. Sure. But again, I mean, even if it's, even if Head Six is originating outside of him somehow, mm -hmm. it it's not physically, like, it's still all mental. Sure. Yes. Uh, in one sense or another, either yes. it's like signals going to his brain, yeah, or it's just his brain already. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I'm not thinking of any other time. Well, except with the heart thing, actually, last week, because she mm. there is like mm -hmm. that moment where like she says, you know, I'll, I can squeeze it, and right. he's like, oh, you know, right, right, that kind of thing. Right. Um, I don't know if that quite counts or not, but no, I mean, I think that kind of hints at that direction of at least suggests that she might have physical power over him, you know, whether that's getting his brain to do certain things or whether whatever that, however that might manifest itself, like it kind of suggests that idea of it's not just that i will be upset or i will be jealous it's like you know i have your heart and if you disappoint me i could maybe kill you <laughs> like i could find a way to make that happen and you know he at least seems to be uncomfortable enough that that is like a real possibility Um, so staying on topic of Baltar for a moment in the, mm. uh, in the Raptor that mm. is crashing, um, mm -hmm. we get, uh, also want to mention, uh, <laughs> sorry, man, Let's see. um, Crashdown, mm. uh, who is appropriately leading this yes. failed mission. He finally lives uh, up to his name. <laughs> right. Uh. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, like, we, I feel like we get more from Crashdown. Like, before, he's sort of, 
been um, just kind of on the sidelines. And not that he has a huge part here, but like now we get him like in the Raptor without Boomer, right? Mm. Like, so this is, he's like sort of de facto leader Mm -hmm. of at least like technical leader and pilot and all of that. Um, Right, right. Even though like, I guess Baltar would technically be the ranking person, right? Yeah, but who's going to listen to Baltar? Um, well, and you've got the chief there too, but, um, yeah, and his, doesn't his, his pilot even get, like, shot? Like, yeah, the person right. in Boomer's seat doesn't survive, so he then, crash down, has to jump to the front and try to land the crashing, and you get right. chief, like, backseat driving, like, right, yelling right, about, right. don't hit the don't mountain. Hit the, don't <laughs> yeah. Hit the, yeah. Um, um but yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. I don't know that I have a lot to say about him. Just sort of noting that he seems to literally step up mm-hmm. <laughs> in that you know moment. Yeah. Um, well, and there is that little moment earlier before Boomer um, gets shot or shoots herself um, when they're in when they find Cobalt, which yeah. again it's Boomer and Crashdown like finding stuff. You know, like right. that seems to be like a thing um, where. They almost like kind of crash because they jump too close and you kind of get their different perspectives. Like Boomer's like freaked by that. Like, yeah, you know, oh, that was a close one. Whereas he kind of seems like a little bit of a daredevil. Like as long as we survive, it's fine. So right. there's that moment of like, oh, you know, like that was kind of there's something kind of fun about it. Um, sure. Like the thrill of as long as it doesn't come too close, he kind of enjoys it. So, you know. That's an interesting thing to note, I think, going into that's like a little prelude to the real crash landing later Um, and maybe kind of why he's able to sort of step up in that situation so well is like he's, you know, goes well under like adrenaline and, you know, emergency situations and everything. Um, All right. So. Let's skip back to Rosalind, though, mm-hmm. um, and talk about her a little bit because we get uh, we get some more with her. So, like, we first have like we you know she's having tests done with Doc Cottle and yeah, uh, he's his usual chip herself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it turns out the cancer like the cancers metastasizing it's in her lymphatic system spreading throughout her body um and you get the conversation between Rosalind and the priest mm-hmm. of uh you know the priest saying oh you made a true believer out of me um you know i know you're the one who's going to lead us to earth and then Rosalind's like, yeah, we'll, we'd better find it soon because I'm dying, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get the her vision, right? So this is the second, at least, unless I'm forgetting any, um, vision that she has uh, while looking at, like, the mm-hmm. photographs that Boomer and Crashdown take of the ruins of Cobal, um, where she actually sees, like, the whole, like, buildings and structure and whatnot um yeah which again like are these actually visions or is it a result of 
these alternative drugs that she's taken, mm. you know, to attempt to treat the cancer, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't seem to be working against the cancer, but seems to be helping her, her to see trippy things. visions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which that, that never occurred to me before, but like, Oh, you know, I don't know that that ever, uh, this might just be totally speculative or whatever, but, um, is that why you have a dying leader who's who's enabled in some way to see these kinds of visions? Like, is that what kind yeah. of you know, like that? Sure. The the aspect of dying and being on psychotropic drugs or whatever might be connected, like in the sense of that's the purpose of having a leader who is dying is she's connected to these sort of other you know realms and ideas and everything. Sure. Because she definitely, I think you've gotten her um, flirting with it before, but this is definitely the confirmation of Rosalind as, like, you know, spiritual guide in that way of she finally really believes it, you know, um, you know, kind of says for herself that she believes that it's real um, and that she is this appointed leader and that everything, this all means something. And we have, you know, we're being sort of divinely guided towards this destination. Um, whereas I don't, I think she not totally got there yet. She was sort of heading in that direction. And this is sort of the culmination of that idea. Sure. Um, so Adama gets a little frustrated mm -hmm. with her, uh, newfound religion. Um, right. Right. And just, uh, tries to convince her that there's no earth and, uh, she doesn't seem to be having any of it. Um, which is, um, a bit of a flip position, right? Because... Mm -hmm. I mean, not that he ever believed Earth, like, because he was making it up from the beginning when he said, mm -hmm. we're going to go find Earth. But, like, she was sort of willing to play along with him, and now mm -hmm. it's him having to sort of play along with her. Mm -hmm. But but you get the sense that Adama's like, hey, look, there's a perfectly good planet right here. <laughs> like, why would we go search for Earth when, like, we could just live here? Right. Which seems like a reasonable enough yeah you know thing to do yeah um but yeah she um has this whole uh uh plan about going back and retrieving this arrow right that would show the way to earth and and all this um right we get all the introduction of all the like MacGuffins and everything of like yeah you know yeah. we're, we have to find cobol which means we need the arrow, which we can use somehow which, on Cobol to point to Earth. Eventually, right. It's like... Uh, it doesn't even give us Earth. It just points the direction. It's like so, the staff in, in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, uh -huh. it's like where, you know, oh, if you stick it in the right hole, it'll the sun will right. shine through and point to right. the right building. And right, like right. Um, but yeah, like, okay, you know. 
I find it interesting that like I mean I guess I could see how you would have skeptics no matter what but it's like if there are all these like implements and sort of like sciencey ways of doing things and why why are you skeptical about the existence of earth mm-hmm. like it kind of seems like like it's not quite like religion like we have it today where like you might have all these different like say you know relics of like bits of wood that claim to be a part of Mm -hmm. the cross that Mm -hmm. you know or like a spearhead that was supposedly the spear that you know jabbed jesus in the side or you know something like that like like if this artifact clearly exists and like i don't know I yeah. I guess maybe this is just because we're on the outside looking in, so maybe it's more sure. Um, yeah, I mean that's kind of the impression that I have of it is is well, yeah, we have this arrow that we have in a museum that is called the Arrow of Apollo, but how many people actually really believe that it was Apollo's literal arrow? Like maybe those people are few and far between like that most people think of it like to think of themselves as more worldly than that and that that's a naive kind of position to take sure i mean that's my impression i don't know if they quite give it enough like layers to really come off like that but i feel like that's the idea is like you know they have this religion that some people believe in literally and some don't and adama's in the don't camp you know whereas starbuck you know is more in the you know in the believer camp like does she totally believe in the literal truth of every legend and prophecy not necessarily but when roslyn kind of quotes scripture and talks about their religion starbuck says I believe those things. That's the way I was taught and I believe in them. Whereas uh, Adama seems um, more, I don't know, like just secular than that, that he's sort of not taking those things in any sort of real literal way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I mean, put up against, put up against the idea of let's settle a perfectly good habitable planet that's right in front of us, all the like goofing around with arrows and everything starts to sound kind of silly, you know, like why are we going to go on some mythical quest that may or may not be real when we have a planet right in front of us? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is a, a reasonable question um sure sure yeah um and i think there there's also like a subtle shift there too like you said with the reversal of adama and Roslyn, like yeah he always knew that he made up the story of earth to give people hope but still this is the first time i think i never necessarily had the sense before this that he definitively didn't believe that there was an earth. Like it was more of a sense of, I'm going to pretend I know where it is when I don't. 
Right. Whereas here he says, you know, there's no earth, right? Like, so that's a scary thing is like, not only does he not know where it is, he doesn't even necessarily believe it's out there. Um, right. And this is the leader of the fleet. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. so we're not going in any particular direction. We're just sort of going just for this, just to keep going. Yeah, um, sure. And- but again, like he's saying that now that he has a perfectly good livable planet right in front of him. Sure. So maybe the tune has changed a little bit. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So. All right. Anyway. Um so we get, you know, the the MacGuffins, like you said, um, and and apparently Starbuck gets bought into, yeah, uh, you know, Rosalind's idea, um, right. right, and using playing her off of Adama, you know, um, there's kind of ruthless uh, Rosalind in there again, you know. Um, the only thing that'll convince Starbuck is to break that faith with Adama, you know, mm-hmm. um, to kind of, she'll only disobey him if she realizes that he's already sort of, you know, lied to them all anyway. Um, and using that sense of betrayal to kind of recruit her for, you know, yeah. for the cause. Yeah. 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 So she goes off on her own. Um, which leaves the base star to be dealt with still. Mm. Um, and the rest of the Cylons that she was going to help take care of. Um, which, yeah, of course sets up a nice cliffhanger for the Mm -hmm. end of the episode because Mm -hmm. we can't resolve anything in the first part of a two part episode. No, no, that would defeat the purpose. So, um, any, any other final thoughts here? Anyone miss? Uh, yeah, actually there's a couple little things. Um, with Rosalind, I want to talk about the scene with Billy really quick. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, cause that's definitely, I think the meatiest Billy scene we've had so far, at least in my opinion, um, where like, sure. you know, after being her kind of uh you know aid for a whole season we get a sense of his you know him having an opinion and being you know willing to share it with her um you know and i like uh something that's lacking in today's political discourse that Rosalind and billy have is an ability to argue with each other and then be kind of nice about it (laughs) like (laughs) you know like um you know, her kind of encouraging him, please share your opinion. You know, I might disagree with it, but I'm, I will hear it. And, you know, and kindly saying, you know, go on, you can finish. It's okay. You're not going to like hurt my feelings if you tell me what you really think. Um, and then when he finishes, he sort of, um, offers to get her some water, like, you know, like I'm going to tell you how I feel, but I'll also continue to take care of you you know sure since you're sick and everything so it's just an interesting development of their relationship i think that they're able to sort of argue and disagree but Mm -hmm. um remain sort of together as like a 
you know, as a partnership, um, you know, yeah. And, and it's not light because he's kind of saying, you're going to bring down the government. (laughs) And so it's not like they're just talking about a disagreement of how do we do something? It's a matter of the, the survival of the fleet and humanity and everything. So it's not anything to be taken lightly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, Billy, Billy got some backbone. Yeah. Um, okay, the other thing I do want to talk about that we skipped was um, Boomer and Baltar. Um, yeah. <sighs> Life can yeah. be a curse as well as a blessing. Oh, man. <sighs> you know, like... For so Baltar starts the the series as like the guy who inadvertently kicked off like the genocide of humanity and mm. spends the rest of the season looking out for number one, yeah. you know, and not necessarily being overtly villainous, but certainly being, you know, self centered and you know ruthless and all these things, and but the, I feel like this is a new low you know this is like Hmm. you know not just uh i'm gonna make sure i survive at all costs but my kind of interpretation is you know he's sitting around waiting for this whatever this unknown thing is this threat to come about and then he bumps into boomer who says i feel like i'm gonna hurt someone you know, and sure. and he knows that she's a Cylon because he's tested her. Right. Um, and number six tells him too. Um and and then he, you know, talks her into shooting herself. You know, right. she's on the fence and he gives her just that little gentle push, you know. Sure. <laughs> and, sure. There you are know. far worse things than death in yeah. this world. And, you know, he's certainly, I think, like rocked by it. Like you see his Right. His look when he leaves, you know, like that maybe how, he wasn't expecting it to work. Right. And and kind of that it's not like he he doesn't walk away with a smile. It's not something he relishes, but he does it anyway. Yeah. Um and like, oh, that is uh a disturbing scene, I think. Um Oh yeah. Cuz cuz she's so innocent and just trusting of she wants she wants to hear his advice. You know, yeah. she probably wants someone to talk her off the ledge, you know, and sure. he doesn't. He pushes her the other way. So. Yeah. Yeah. Baltar is a jerk. Um, but in a way that makes it seem like it's all her decision, which is the worst kind of manipulation, you know? Oh, yeah. You definitely. know? Embrace what you know to be the right decision. So it has nothing to do with me. Um, yep. Do we do we have anything else to say about like Boomer and Tyrrell and their little? I uh, mean, not really. Other than I mean, I guess just that he goes down and sees her, and you know, she like. I mean, it's sort of typical stubbornness between people who have you know former lovers who have 
who feel like they each have been wronged in some mm-hmm. way or the other. And, you know, she's like, well, you've made your position clear. And so I'm going to make mine clear. And, mm-hmm. You know, I don't need you. I'll figure it out on my own kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there, It's stubbornness on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that we get a ton to talk about there unless, unless I'm like completely missing something, but. No. Um, yeah, no. like it's obvious. Tyrrell still cares for her, mm-hmm. um, and maybe less obvious that she seems to care for him, but feels hurt by mm-hmm. his betrayal. So, like, she obviously needs someone to be there for her, but mm-hmm. she doesn't want to allow herself to let him be the one to be there right in any capacity whether it's romantic or not right right which is the kind of dangerous part because you know if you're kind of putting two and two together that like baltar you hear head six saying okay an attack is coming and then you've got boomer walking around saying i think i might hurt somebody and but she's refusing all help you know Um, she doesn't successfully kill herself, you know, whether that's her own reluctance or Cylon programming taking over and preventing it, she doesn't go through with it. And, but in her survival, she doesn't reach out and ask for any sort of, you know, or even let Tyrrell offer any sort of help. So, you know, so she's not necessarily better off at the end of the episode than she was at the beginning. She's still having the same no doubts and fears I mean, and everything. Seems demonstrably worse off. Well, yes. <laughs> no, but it's not like going through with it purged her of those demons or anything. It's like she still has those same fears, you know, um, that she with had the- at the start. With the addition of a shot, like, through her face. Yeah. And <laughs> and and emotionally and mentally, the addition of the fact that she failed to kill herself. Right. Like, you know. Right. I mean, right. I don't she mean to has, be glib about it, but, she like. She still has Boltars. I can't even do yeah. that right, you know. Right, like, right. So, right. Yeah. Right. Anyway. On yeah. that happy note, <laughs> perhaps we should. Uh, give it a rest and come back next week to talk about part two where we undoubtedly have more to say on these and other topics. Sounds good. All right. See you then.